Welcome to Words of Grace, radio ministry of Elder Ben Winslet, pastor of the Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. We invite you to stay tuned to today's broadcast. Our broadcast today is entitled, Then Comes the End. Lately on Words of Grace, we've given a lengthy consideration to the climate of the world at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible predicts that Jesus is going to return again. We know that after he was crucified on the third day, he rose again. After some 40 days, he ascended up into glory after meeting with his disciples on multiple times, showing himself alive. And as he ascended to glory, the angels said that he will return in the same manner in which he went away. Jesus is coming again. Two radio programs ago, as we considered some of the things that happened before the end of the world, we shared some thoughts with you from Revelation chapter 20 concerning Gog and Magog. Gog being a wicked ruler, and Magog being his people. People who wage war against the camp of the saints and the beloved city— and last week we shared similar thoughts with you from the book of Second Thessalonians chapter 2 regarding the man of sin, an evil person who sits in some capacity in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. Today we want to revisit the subject of eschatology, the study of the end of time from the Bible, shifting our focus to the overall condition of the world at Jesus' return, Also, what we can expect to happen to this world in which we live when Jesus returns. And then lastly, where we expect to be with the Lord afterwards. Just a little bit of a note about this particular chapter. This is a chapter in which the Apostle Paul confronts a grievous heresy that was spreading through the church at Corinth at this time, the time of his writing in the first century, which denied the resurrection. Paul spends this great length of space in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 confronting this idea and giving many proofs of the resurrection of our bodies at the end of time based upon the resurrection of the Lord. And just simply put, if we do not rise at the end of time, then was Christ not raised? And if Christ was not raised, then our faith is vain. We have no hope. We might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But Jesus rose again. And because Jesus rose again, you and I will be raised again at the second coming. But the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is the resurrection of the dead at the end of the world. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 22. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming. Now here's our slogan phrase for today. Then cometh the end, when he shall deliver up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. 
As we begin speaking about the end of time with you today on Words of Grace, we want to go verse by verse through the passages that we considered before branching out from these into other portions of God's Word that communicate the same thing for us. And as we begin looking more deeply at just these passages that we have read, you will see very plainly how what I've shared with you about Gog and Magog and their destruction and the man of sin and his destruction, how those concepts also find themselves here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as we read language about Christ putting down all power and rule and dominion and authority. Verse 22, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Every man in Adam died in Adam. That is to say, when Adam violated the law of God, we all died with him. He was our federal head. When he violated the law of God, it was as if we violated the law of God because, number one, he represented us as our head, and number two, we were yet in his loins in a sense. In the same way, every person in Christ shall be made alive. This isn't saying this phrase here, as in, Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. This isn't saying that every human being who has ever lived or will ever live will be made alive in Christ. But what this is saying is that all who were represented by Christ as their federal head, and these same people are the same body of people, who will be born of God and are children of God. All who are in Christ, they shall be made alive. And so you have two federal heads here. You have the first Adam and you have the last Adam. You have the first man, Adam, who was of this earth, earthy. He violated God's law. And when he violated God's law, his entire race, everyone that he had after him, would be plunged into sin because of his original sin, his transgression. When Adam began having children, we read in Genesis chapter 5 that they were made after the image of Adam. What was Adam's image by this point? Well, it was fallen. It was corrupted. He was made in the image of God, and we were made in the image of God. And because of that, human beings deserve dignity and respect. But at the same time, Adam marred that image, and human beings enter into this world conceived in sin and shapen in iniquity. Sin has passed upon all, for that all have sinned because of that original sin of Adam. We all died with him. God tells him, In the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. And we died with Adam. In the same sense, you and I, anyone who belongs to the Lord, anyone that was chosen by the Father, who was redeemed by the Son and quickened by the Holy Spirit, we will all be made alive because of the death of our federal head, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ, all shall be made alive. That is to say, all who are in Christ will be made alive because of Christ. Because of the work of Christ, all who are Christ's, notice that statement in verse 23, they that are Christ's, and that word Christ's is possessive, those that belong to Christ, those who are his possession, they will all be made alive. They will be raised at Jesus' return. They will be taken away with the Lord to be with him forevermore in bliss and peace and harmony. All of those who belong to him shall be raised by him at the last day. And then notice what we find in verse 24. 
then cometh the end. Then is the end of time. When Jesus returns and resurrects his people, that is the end of it. Then, as you read very plainly here, cometh the end. Not to beat a dead horse, but notice here the connection between the resurrection and the end, the last day. So it isn't that Christ returns and there's a resurrection and then a millennial later comes the end. But when Christ returns, he raises his people from the dead and then comes the end. That's the end of it all. That's the last day. He returns in the twinkling of an eye. He does some things while he's here. He raises the dead. He changes his children. There will be a judgment. There will be the destruction of the world, as we will see momentarily. And that's the end. That is the end of it. And then we go to be with him in glory forevermore. Then cometh the end. That is the end of the world, which is at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus returns, notice in this next phrase, then cometh the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father. At this second coming of Christ, it is the end of time, it is the end of the world, and he will deliver up his kingdom to God. Now this has reference in this passage to all of those who are born again. The kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, is a common theme throughout the New Testament, but it was actually foretold of in the Old Testament. In the book of Daniel, we read of visions wherein there would be four world empires, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome, and it would be in the days of the Roman Caesars that God himself would establish a kingdom in the world. The Bible says that, and it was in the days of the Roman Empire that God established his kingdom. And so the Old Testament, well, it foretells of the kingdom of Christ, and it says God himself is going to establish this kingdom that will be in the world. And so while the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is a common New Testament theme, it isn't exclusive to the New Testament, but the Old Testament foretells it. When John the Baptist began his personal ministry, as John came preaching, do you know what he preached? He preached, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Likewise, in Matthew 4, when Jesus began his personal ministry, do you know what he preached? He preached to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Jesus sent preachers into the world to preach to other people, and initially he sends them to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But by the time he would ascend to glory, he commanded them to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, to go into all nations, teaching them, baptizing them, and teaching them. He sends them to preach that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Simply put, the kingdom of heaven, as a term, refers to all who are citizens of glory, those who belong to Christ, all of his subjects, and we become citizens of this kingdom at the new birth. How is it that I am an American citizen? I'm an American citizen because I was born in the United States. I'm a citizen by birth. It's similar with the kingdom of heaven. You are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven because you were born of God. Or as Colossians says, we are translated into the kingdom of his dear son. Translated, there being a word that is a synonym for the new birth. It's another one of these words that describes what happens to us when we are born of the Spirit of God. 
we are translated into his kingdom, we become citizens of his kingdom when we are born of the Spirit of God. Well, we know that the new birth is by grace, not of works, lest any man should boast. So where does repentance and believing fit in this framework of the kingdom of heaven? We're translated into the kingdom as citizens at the new birth, but we enter into the gates of it as often as we enter into the gates of it here as we live in this world by turning from our sins and believing the word of God, believing the gospel message, trusting in the Lord, worshiping him, etc. Now, I really want to emphasize that point. We have kingdom experiences, or put another way, We experience life in the kingdom as often as we are actively turning from our sin and endeavoring to believe God's word. Over and over in our lives, we enter the gates of the kingdom just like Israel would make their journeys up to Jerusalem in the Old Testament. That is kingdom life. We are translated into it by birth, the new birth, and we enter its gates and enjoy the benefits of citizenship when we repent and we believe God's word and we stay within those gates, we stay within those boundaries of the kingdom. You and I know that we can be an American citizen on foreign soil and lose the rights and privileges of our home. But when we are within the borders of our home, we have full rights to all of the things that we enjoy as American citizens. When we repent and believe, we've entered into the gates of the kingdom. We are in the boundaries of the kingdom, and we enjoy life in the kingdom. This is kingdom life. Now, there's coming a day in which the entire kingdom, from Abel, the first person we know of who did something by faith, all the way to the last child of God— They will be delivered up, the entire kingdom, and this ushers in what I like to refer to as the final phase of God's kingdom. We enjoy living in the kingdom of heaven in this world when we worship him. This is to be something that manifests itself in the church. But again, we're all citizens of it if we're born of the Spirit of God. And that's the enjoyment of the kingdom here in this world. And there are many parables that deal with that reality. But according to the parable of the wheat and the tares, there's coming a day in which God weeds out the tares, and he carries the wheat to be with him forever, and that's also a kingdom parable. That's the final phase of the kingdom. After the resurrection, as we read here in 1 Corinthians 15, God delivers up the kingdom where they will be, we will be with him forevermore. This is the final phase of his kingdom when every single citizen, who are the citizens? Those who are translated from darkness to light, into the kingdom of his dear son, the born again, all of those who are born again will be with God in the final phase of his kingdom where he is king and we are with him forevermore. Continuing in this verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father. Notice this next phrase, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and all power. He will put down all rule and authority. He will put down all power. If you caught our last two broadcasts, you saw great examples of this in Gog and Magog and the man of sin. And the jury is still out as to whether or not those prophecies, Revelation 20 and Gog and Magog and 2 Thessalonians 2 and the man of sin, are referring to the same person or two different wicked leaders that will commit their wickedness at the end of time. Regardless, Jesus puts them down. 
Jesus defeats them. Jesus destroys them. And as we saw last week, this is with the brightness of his coming with fire and brimstone and flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God. Regardless of whether Gog and the man of sin are two men or these are two different prophecies of the same man, Jesus puts every wicked ruler down. He puts down all power that exists that is not his. Here's something to realize. The powers that be are, in fact, ordained of God. And this is why we are to respect the authorities in our own individual countries and communities. Romans 13 speaks to this, and it says that rulers are intended to be a terror unto evil. We learn in Paul's writings to Timothy that we should pray for our leaders so that we, innocent folks who are just trying to honor God in their lives, can lead a quiet and peaceable life. Furthermore, Jude warns against those who despise dominion and speak evil of dignities. And sometimes the debate is had whether or not dignities and dominion has reference to dignities and dominion in a spiritual sense or in a physical sense here in this world. But I would submit to you that that's probably missing the point because authority is authority. Respect is respect. We're to respect spiritual authorities, and we are to respect political, civil authorities. Now, do you and I always do that? (laughs) No, we don't, especially as it relates to political authorities here in the world. But the Word of God calls on us to pray for our leaders, to respect those who are in a position of authority, and to pray that we get to lead a quiet and peaceable life as they rule in such a way that would be beneficial to us and becoming to a peaceable life. But listen to me. There is coming a day when there will be no more need of civil government. There won't be a need of civil government after the second coming of Christ because all of those who are in their sins, dead in trespasses and in sins, they will be cast into the lake of fire under God's punishment and his judgment. And those who know the Lord Jesus Christ will be carried away with him to a place where sin can no longer corrupt, where there is no need for protection, where there is no need for military or police or jails, but we will be conformed to the image of Jesus in the resurrection. We died and we were sown in corruption but we are raised incorruptible, one word, incorruptible, unable to be corrupted again. And that is a state the Bible calls glorified because we are glorified. There is no need anymore for civil government. And so God's redeemed an innumerable host of people out of every nation, kindred and tongue will live directly and solely under God's own personal authority. So this is true of all the wicked rulers of this world. Every single one of them will be put down. All governments will have ended. The wicked rulers, powerful as they might be here in the world, shall be judged themselves by the King of kings and Lord of lords. And don't think for a moment that he doesn't know how to deal with them. What did God do with Pharaoh in Moses' day? He drowned him and his host in the midst of the sea after sending one plague after another as a judgment upon their people for afflicting the children of Israel. God knew how to deal with Pharaoh, didn't he? What about in the New Testament? Did God know how to deal with Herod Agrippa I that had put James, the brother of John, to death by beheading 
and then received worship as he gave an oration, a speech, and people says, oh, it's the it's the words of a God and not the words of a man. What did God do to him? He smote him and he died. He struck him down with an infection of worms and Herod Agrippa I died. God knows how to deal with wicked rulers. Every single wicked ruler in that day shall be put down. Now, I have to tell you by biblical authority from Psalm 73 that it is very common for wicked men to have great power in this world. Sometimes that power is political. Sometimes that power is the power that wealth buys you. And in this country today, sometimes I am made to wonder if those who are extremely wealthy who lobby in the background don't actually have more political power than those men and women who actually hold a political office. But regardless, God will put down all power, all authority. He will be the only authority remaining, the ultimate authority that he has been all along. The next phrase in our run of verses, 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-five, says that Jesus must reign. This is present tense until he has put all enemies under his feet. And this hells back to statements regarding his kingdom. Jesus is reigning over his kingdom today. He must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. That happens at the second coming when the end comes and he delivers up his kingdom. But Jesus must reign even today. That is present tense. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Jesus is reigning over his kingdom today and will one day deliver it up, to put in simple terms. As he does, this ends all earthly authority, and then he puts all of his enemies under his feet forevermore. And being put under his feet, this is an idiom for defeating them, a word picture for defeating them soundly. They will be trodden under his feet and judged as it were. So in consideration of the climate of the world at Jesus' coming, what did we read from Revelation chapter 20 two weeks ago? Well, we read that Satan shall be loosed from his prison and go about deceiving the nations, the Gentiles, causing carnage. People are fighting throughout the four quarters of the world and on the breadth of the earth, and the number of those who are fighting are as innumerable as the sand of the sea. That's a huge conflict. We know there will be a mass departure from the faith, according to Second Thessalonians chapter 2 and Paul's writings to Timothy. And we also know that evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. This brings a parallel to the time of Noah and Noah's day. In Genesis chapter 6, we learn that prior to the flood, every imagination of the thoughts and intents of the heart of man was only evil continually. Now, that is more than a mouthful. Every imagination of the thoughts and intents of man's heart was only evil continually. And so you have every, only, and continually describing this one thing, the evil imaginations of mankind. And so because of that, the earth was corrupt and filled with violence. It was absolutely permeated with violence, with abuse. It was a terrible place. And because of that, God put it out of its misery. Now, do you think a parallel between the earth at the end of time and the earth in Noah's day is just my conjecture or my speculation? No, in fact, it's precisely the point that Jesus made regarding his second coming in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew chapter 24, 
verses 36 through 41. Referring to his second coming, but of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. In the days of the coming of the Son of Man, it will be like it was in Noah's day. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Then shall two be in the field, one taken, and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one shall be taken, and the other left. The second coming parallels Noah's day and the flood of Noah. About this passage, no one knows the day of the second coming of Christ. It will be like in Noah's day. This speaks to the culture of the world, the climate of the world at this time. The flood then came and took them away, and Noah was left behind. Likewise, God's vengeance will take the wicked away at Christ's second coming, and we will be left with God. Jesus returns as a thief in the night, as 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 2 says, and they will despair without relief. So what happens to this physical creation when Jesus returns? As far as people in the return of Christ, we will be resurrected, as we've emphasized over the past two weeks. The dead, both just and unjust, shall be raised, one to bliss and the other to condemnation. We which are alive and remain shall be changed, translated, and called up to join those who have been raised from the dead in the air? What about the physical creation? Peter answers that for us in Second Peter chapter 3, when he says, The heavens shall pass away with great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Notice this, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, the same thing that Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. This physical creation is going to be destroyed. The earth and the works therein shall be burned up. Think about this. God destroyed the world once with water in Noah's day, but there's coming a day in which he will destroy the world by fire instead. So the world is going to be destroyed. Well, where do we end up? Sometimes people have an unusual or should I say, unbiblical idea about heaven. They might think we float around in clouds forever with harps and halos. Some people might think that we're just absorbed into some blinding light. Or perhaps we're in a monstrous throne room, standing forever and ever and ever before the throne of God. Peter actually answers the question of where we end up at the end of time in this chapter. He says in verse 13, Nevertheless, despite these things, despite the destruction of the world, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. And I would add, only righteousness. Where do we end up? We end up in a new creation. As we bring our broadcast today to a close, John sees this in Revelation chapter 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is after the resurrection and the judgment in the preceding chapter. This is what happens directly after that. He sees his kingdom that he delivered up to the Father, now coming down 
as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. Don't you yearn for a day where there's no more crying? There shall be no more death. Don't you yearn for a day where there is no more death? Neither sorrow. Do you have sorrows in your life? There's coming a day for the child of God where there will be no more sorrow, nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things, all of those terrible things, are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are faithful and true. At the close of the book of Revelation, after seeing everything that John has seen, as Jesus tells him, Surely I come quickly. Amen. John simply replies, Even so, come, Lord Jesus. And to that we say, Amen and Amen. Again, I'm Ben Winslet, thanking you for listening to Words of Grace today, inviting you to write. Let me know that you've received today's broadcast and also to tune in again next week at this time. Until then, may the Lord's richest blessings be yours is by prayer. If you enjoy the messages you hear on Words of Grace, consider this your invitation to visit a Primitive Baptist Church in your community. Copies of this and other broadcasts are available for download on iTunes and on our website. Address your correspondence to Words of Grace Radio, 641 Moontown Road, Brownsboro, Alabama, 35741. Or visit us online at flintriverpbc.org.